So, you got through the day, your first day of the retreat. Some of you, um, some of you, it's the first day that you've ever had a day of silence. So, in some ways, it's you know, it's quite an achievement. It's um, you know, you're still here, you've survived, you're all right. <laughs> you. You need to let the body settle in. It takes a couple of days just to feel a sense of being here, letting the mind get adjusted to this new situation. It always takes time to adjust to something new. And this is, this is quite new for a lot of people. And so sometimes we find we, we come in with our expectations of how we want it to be or how we want it to go and we forget that you know, it's just a matter of being with these changes, you know, from what we had before to this very different and, in some ways, quite unnatural, given the way the culture operates. This is very unnatural for the body to sit so still or to walk so slow, and to be so quiet and not be interacting and being social. Mm. So the body has to adjust to this. But we notice these expectations. Now, many, some of you talked about your expectations in the small group today. Now, did you notice your expectations that you had today that you came with? Maybe things today didn't happen quite the way you imagined they would happen. And I don't know whether you experienced any kind of a struggle with that, with the idea of how you wanted the day to go and how it actually did go. Depending on how strong that expectation was will determine how much struggle there is, how much conflict there is in the mind and the body. So we may have had expectations for the mind to be quiet. I don't know if anybody had this one. (laughs) I mean, some people know that the mind's not going to be quiet, but there's still the expectation that it's going to be quiet. (laughs) You know, how how much we know this mind is so active and busy, it's still, it's like, why? Why is it so busy? Why is it so noisy? Hmm? Or to be able to focus on the breathing. You know, I, I present the instructions of focusing on the breath. So it sets up some subtle expectation in that, that maybe that's in fact what we can do is stay with the breath in, you know, maybe for more than um, three or four breaths at most. You think maybe I can stay with the breath. But one breath, we're gone. Two breaths, we're gone. Mm-hmm. So perhaps some expectation there of how to follow the meditation instruction. Maybe less sleepy, being less sleepier than you were, less dull than you were, maybe less restless, whatever your particular flavor is in the meditation. Or maybe you wanted more interaction with the teacher, you know, something, you know, maybe some expectation. What kind of expectations did you notice today? You had. 
I think all of us have a fair amount of expectation. I think we, we all have. It's just sort of a, a natural inclination to expect that certain things are going to happen. But the question really is, how quickly can we let go of these expectations once they're seen? How much investment do we actually put in these expectations when we see that they're not manifesting the way we want them to manifest? Can we let go? Can we just say, oh yeah, right, that was just an expectation and it's not that way, it's different. And how much can we open to and be with the reality? Be with the, the, re, the, the, the actuality of our experience? Do we actually believe in these expectations and think that they're going to bring us some kind of peace? that if my mind was more quiet, if my, I was able to focus more on the breath, if I was less sleepy, or whatever the, the expectation is, then I'd feel happier in some way. Do we actually believe this? Is there some investment in this belief? One expectation that many people have is that doing the meditation practice is going to give us something. That we're actually going to gain something from this practice that we can take away with us. Hmm? Maybe the thought that I will become a better person, I will become better, I will become happier, I will become more than who I am because who I am isn't enough, and I want to become more. And of course, this is fair enough. This is a fair enough hope that we can become all that we're going to be, because we don't want to live with the confusion, with the greed, with the hatred, with the dullness of mind. But as one teacher so wonderfully put, he said, this is not the store this is the dump. This is not the place <laughs> where we're going to accumulate new things and buy new things for ourselves. This is where we dump it, <laughs> where we get rid of it. And to really understand what meditation is, we really need to understand this that this meditation practice is the practice of letting go. It's the practice of letting go, not accumulating new things, not accumulating a new identity, a new sense of who I am, a new self-image, you know, maybe a spiritual self-image, you know, now I'll be more spiritual in the world, you know. This is the dump. Everything has to go. Eventually, everything has to go. We can't take anything with us. Even this meditation technique has to go. This meditation technique gives us a vehicle to come to the understanding that this is the dump. That we just have to let go of everything of all our sense of who we think we are in order to discover who we really are. 
to discover the true reality of our being. Because all these concepts and ideas and beliefs and identities and roles and self-images, they all interfere if we have any investment or any belief in these ideas. To really come to the truth of who we are, we have to let go of this all. Truly, we don't gain anything. We just find out through awareness, through this gift, this tool of awareness, what actually interferes with our being happy. What interferes with us knowing our natural state? And when we find out with this gift, with this tool of awareness, what we do that brings about our misery, then we can stop doing it. It's really simple. But we need to know what we're doing that keeps us feeling this sense of distress and dissatisfaction before we can stop it. But first we have to see it. We have to see it. An essential part of the teaching is this understanding of the causes of happiness and unhappiness. If I want to be happy, then I need to pay attention to what causes happiness. And then once I know what causes happiness, then I can make those choices to bring about more happiness in my life. If I want the pain to stop, then I need to pay attention to what brings about the pain so that I can stop doing those things. And so the meditation can help us wake up to know what leads to greater peace and what leads to greater suffering. And in the knowing of this, then we can let go. We even know what we need to let go of because it can seem like sort of a great mass of confusion or, you know, don't even know the path or don't even know the way. But the, but the teachings can help point the way so we know what we can let go of to discover who we truly are. Through, through clear seeing into the causes of happiness and unhappiness, we make the choice for peace. It's a natural outcome of understanding these causes. It's a natural outcome of wisdom and insight that we would make the choice for peace. So truly we don't gain anything. We just let go of what interferes with our happiness. So this is the practice of letting go. Letting go of what causes the dissatisfaction in our lives. And until it's seen, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. We just we can really have a sense of confusion of why do I feel this reoccurring pain in my life? Why do I feel this deep dissatisfaction in my life? And it can be really quite disconcerting. And so we need, sometimes we need help. We need inspiration. We need guidance to point the way. To point the way to something that is inherently ours, which is our happiness, which is our peace. It's there waiting for us. So until we know what we're doing, we just go round and round and round, repeating the same old habits 
again and again. And meditation can help us wake up to get off this treadmill, this treadmill of what we call samsara in the Buddhist teachings. That's the Pali word for the wheel of birth and death. Just go round and round and round. <laughs> of course, it's talking about it in a very much bigger scheme of things, being born and dying and born and dying and born and dying for millenniums. You know. And this is pointing the way of getting off the wheel completely, complete and utter freedom from this pain. So we look directly at ourselves to understand and to settle back into ourselves and discover who we really are. Ajahn Sumedho, who some of you may know, who's the abbot of Amavati here in England, he has written some beautiful things. He's given some wonderful teachings. And he talks about, this is a transcription from one of his talks, he talks about something that he saw in himself that interfered with his happiness. When he was, when he was looking very deeply into the causes of un- unhappiness, and he found that w- one thing that interfered for him was trying to understand and to analyze things this continual habit of, of, of staying caught up in his mind, trying to understand, trying to understand. And this is what he writes, he, he says, and then it's written. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, letting go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that, achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, then the Nikaya and the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. (laughs) Let go, let go. (laughs) I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) (laughs) Some of you might have the desire to become the Buddha of the age, Maitreya, radiating love throughout the world. But instead, I suggest just being an earthworm. Letting go of the desire to radiate love throughout the world. Just be an earthworm who knows only two words. Let go, (laughs) let go, let go. See how simple he makes it. There's really not a lot that we have to do. But yet this force of becoming, of wanting to become somebody or become something better or become something more is so strong in us. I mean, it's really the way we've been conditioned since we've been very small. I know for myself, it's, not a, uh, it's a message that I heard again and again, was to become something, something big, something great. Hmm? 
well, certainly better than I was, which was just a bratty old kid. <laughs> I, I just spent a few days with a friend here in Totnes, who's the mother of a three-year-old boy. And it was, it's, I stay with her quite often, and it's such an inspiration to watch her with her child, because I think the way she is with her child was certainly not something that I've experienced very much certainly in my own life, and not very many times in other families or families I hear about. And she has such a great ability to allow him to be just as he is in all of his ups and downs and his screaming and yelling and anger and and sweetness and um, when he's absorbed in his toys or whatever he's doing, it's okay. It's absolutely okay, and she can embrace him in any way that he is. And I have to reflect to myself what that, what kind of message that child is getting, and what he'll grow up with, and how that will influence his mind in his own way that he relates to himself about needing to be somebody different than he is. There's so much love and so much acceptance in all of his mind states and all of his behaviors. And it can be easy to criticize and think maybe she's too spacious. You know, there should be more discipline. You know, <laughs> He's getting away with too much. He's going to be a spoiled kid. You know? But in reflection, now when I reflect on how it is so congruent with the teachings of be with things as they are, allow things to be as they are. It's such, she's, she's manifesting such a beautiful example of that teaching with this child. And he is a very, very alive and bright, intelligent child. So, so far, the fruits of it are really revealing itself. This is very, very different than my own upbringing, <laughs> which was a very strong message that how I was was not okay. And it's the primary message that I remember receiving. I don't remember receiving very many other messages. And so the outcome of that for me, when I was 13, I basically started reading lots of how-to books, which were very popular on the market, on how to become fill-in-the-blank, how to become popular, how to become uh, successful, how to, become, how to have more friends, how to be beautiful, you know, how, whatever the book was that was available, you know, how to be more than I was. Mm-hmm. Because I was sure that the way I was was not acceptable, was not good enough. And I would listen to the radio and sort of pine away, the, you know, all the story, the songs about having wonderful boyfriends and <laughs> love affairs and, you know, doing this and that and reading the Seventeen magazine, which I don't know if you, you probably have, you know, seeing the glamorous models and you know, all these images of, of what was possible and then comparing it back to what I saw in myself. So whether it was the messages I was getting from my family or the messages I was getting from the media, they were all saying, it's not enough, it's not enough. And then my brother, my brother who was three years older than I, he told me that I needed an identity in the world. I really needed an identity. So I, 
so I dyed my hair blonde. <laughs> you know, tried to make a statement, and he hated it. And he said that I needed a different identity. And <laughs> by the time I was about 28 or 29, or maybe a little younger, 27, I was having a nervous breakdown because I didn't know who I was. And I was trying so hard to be what other people wanted me to be. Because that's what, that was, I didn't have any other path. I didn't have any other map to happiness. It was just to listen to other people's solutions, other people's options for happiness. But <laughs> I was so disgruntled and so discouraged by the time I was 27, I was so unhappy that I nearly had a nervous breakdown. So I told the, I was working in a university for a, a professor, and I went into work that day and I said, I, I have to find myself. I'm lost. I just, I think I'm going to go to some Greek island and become a painter. Because I was an artist. I, I had a background in painting and art. I, said, I think I'll just be an artist and just go away somewhere and hide and paint. And he said to me, and he must have been very intuitive, and he said to me, is this just another image or is it coming from your heart? Is it something that you really feel you want to do or is it another idea, another identity that you'll just put on yourself? And for some reason at that time I could hear it. I could hear it and I knew that something had to change. I had to stop searching outward for who I was and to go inward to find out who I really am. And so I began the meditation but I began with this whole sense of needing to become somebody. I didn't know another way yet, and I didn't even recognize that that's what I was doing. So I just shifted this imposition of becoming somebody in the world to becoming a meditator and becoming a spiritual person. And then I was supposed to be loving and gentle and warm and compassionate and have a clear mind and not be reactive and 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 then again I wasn't any of those things. <laughs> I mean perhaps it, sometimes I was but many times I wasn't and there was no way to hold that because again this image this idea that I should be that without without really getting yet the teachings just to come back to yourself. Allow yourself to be who you are. And from in that place, the discovery can happen, the unfolding can happen. But that going out, going out to other people's ideas, other people's values and impositions, and on the minds I collected ideas of who I should be, how I should be, that has to come to an end before we can truly find out. So as I continued with the meditation and continued listening to the teachings and continued the path, because I could sense that there was something, that there was something different, there was something touching me, something I could hear, I finally got, got it. I 
finally got the message. And I could finally see, I could recognize the arising of these values and these impositions and these shoulds and these expectations and these demands that I was placing on myself. I could hear them and recognize them and see that they were actually the culprit. It was the belief in those values and those ideas that were causing me my distress and they were keeping me alienated from myself. Because as long as I went out to try to achieve that, I wouldn't find out what's here. I wouldn't be able to discover the jewels that are sitting right in my heart. Were the jewels that are sitting right in your heart this very minute. We have to discover what it is that interferes with the knowing of that. What interferes with the with the living that, living from that. It's hard to take these steps without that sense of improving ourselves, of becoming better. And there's really no problem in wanting to be all that we want to be. But we have to understand how that happens, how that can truly happen, and to be very watchful of these impositions that we put on ourselves, whether they're worldly impositions or meditating, meditators' ideas. Because if we try to be what we're not, it's false. It's pretentious. These qualities of love and gentleness and connection and responsiveness, compassion. These are qualities that arise spontaneously through understanding, through insight. These are the qualities of the heart that are already present when we can access them. When we can see what we're doing that blocks the revelation of these qualities, And if we try to impose them before their time, it's tainted, it's false. And we can know the difference between a time we're responding in a very genuine way and a time when we're not responding. It doesn't mean that these qualities are absent until one day we wake up. You can see that many times in the day, many times in your worldly life, these qualities break through. These qualities are present. They're right there, the qualities of the heart. It's not something that we have to wait for, something that's, that's, that's completely unavailable to us. It's just that what's possible is for these qualities to be present all the time, for us to have access to these all the time once we understand, once we see what clouds these from our vision, from our knowing. So our task is to find out who we are. When we're not bound up in identity, in self-image, in roles, and trying to be somebody special, trying to be somebody important, but rather really just simply being who we are 
being who we are is enough. It's enough. And as we go through the day here, again and again, you'll be asked to just allow what's happening to just happen. To allow yourself to be just as you are. To be able to find enough space, enough gentleness, enough kindness to allow for the changes of the mind state, to allow for the ups and the downs and the movements of mind, to allow yourself to go through everything that you need to go through here. And this is where the discovery happens. And through this allowance, we can face whatever it is that we fear and want to keep hidden from ourselves because we think it's going to be too much or it's going to overwhelm us if we allow it into consciousness. But little by little, we can become stronger and have more capacity to face these difficulties in ourselves, the things that we find most fearful in ourselves. But it takes a great amount of patience, a great amount of acceptance, a great amount of letting be So here, we, as much as can, we can, we let the ego dissolve. And what I mean by ego is this sense of self, is this contracted sense of self that gets bound up into a sense of meanness, a sense of I-ness. So we let that start to dissolve, let the structure of that start to come apart. The sense of how we know ourselves. And can we dare, can we really dare to just let it all dissolve so that we stand referenceless? We stand referenceless without any reference points to the point perhaps that we don't even know who we are anymore. That all these ideas and beliefs and constructions and ideas that I had about myself no longer have any place because I see that they're not true anymore. And in that, something else begins to emerge. Something else begins to reveal itself, to show itself that's much more powerful, much more vast, much greater than our small minds, our small self could ever imagine could ever even think about. So we have to let these thoughts, these ideas, this, constri- this bundle of, of, of this bundle which creates the thinking mind. <laughs> it's kind of like this bundle, isn't it? <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it can feel just like this ball, <laughs> so solid and so hard, you know? And so we just have to kind of let it melt like ice melts in the sun. You know, let the light shine on it. The light of awareness in this case. The awareness has so much power. It has, it has so much warmth. And it can just melt this bundle of constructs. Just melt away, dissolve away, until we can really see what's there what's underneath it all, when it all kind of dissolves. But it can take a great deal of trust, a great deal of faith, to do that, 
to let go in that way, to let go of the known, to let go of the things that keep us feeling secure and safe, that we think keeps us secure, and to see if something else can be discovered that can bring us more joy and happiness than we can ever imagine. But it takes a great deal of risk to drop the mind into the heart and rest there. I'll just read, um, to end, I want to read a little story which I read in Bodhgaya, and there's a few people here who've already heard it. But I, it's one of my favorite stories from the book uh, How Can I Help by Ramdas. Ramdas put together a collection of interviews. And it's a story about an intern, a doctor, who was working in a hospital. And he was challenged very much by one of the patients in the ward to really find out who he was and how attached he was to this identity of doctor. As an intern, part of my work was to travel around in teams examining patients. I would notice their look as we entered, intimidated, apprehensive, feeling like, the, feeling like case studies of various illnesses. I hated that, but I was an intern. I remember one guy distinctly, however, who was altogether different. I think this guy changed my life. He was a black man in his 60s, very cute, very mischievous, and very sick. What brought us repeatedly to him was the utter complexity of his illness, condition on top of condition, and the mystery of why he was still alive. It was so strange. We were visiting not to find out what was wrong with him, but why he was still here at all. I had the feeling he could see right through us. He'd say, Hey, boys, when we'd come in, the way you might when a gang of ten-year-olds come barging into a house for a snack in the middle of an intense game outside. He was so pleased and so amused. He made some people nervous. I was intrigued, but for some weeks I never had a chance to be alone with him. Now and then he'd get into very serious trouble and he'd be moved into intensive care. Then he'd rally to everyone's amazement and we'd move him back. And we'd visit him again and he'd say, You boys here again? Pretending to be surprised that we were still around. (laughs) One night there was an emergency, and I took the initiative and went to see him alone. He looked pretty bad, but he came alert a few seconds after I entered. He gave me a grin, and he said, Well, sort of like he'd expected me, like he'd known how much I'd come to love him. That happens in hospitals. I imagine I looked a little surprised at the, well, but we just laughed a minute and I stood there just so taken by who he was. And then he hit me with a single remark, half a question and half a something else. Who you, he said, sort of smiling. Just that, who you. I started to say, well, I'm doctor, and then I just stopped cold. It's hard to describe. I just sort of went out. What happened was all kinds of answers to his questions started to go through my head. They all seemed true, 
but they all seemed less than true. Yeah, I'm this or I'm that, and I'm also, but not just. And that's not the whole picture. The whole picture is the thought process went something like that. Nothing remotely like that had ever happened to me before, but I remember feeling very elated. It must have shown because he gave me this big grin and said, nice to meet you. His timing killed me. We talked for five minutes about this and that, nothing in particular, children, I think. At the end, I ventured to say, is there anything I can do for you? He said, no, I'm just fine, thanks very much. Doctor, and he paused for the name, and I gave it to him this time, and he grinned at me again, really he did, and that was it. He died a few days later, and I carry him around today. I think of him now and again in the midst of my rounds. A particular moment or a particular patient brings him back. Who you? For years I trained to be a physician, and I almost got lost in it. This man took away my degree and then gave it back to me with, and also, and also, and also, scribbled across it. I'll never forget that. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.